This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my conversation with presidential historian Harold Holzer was recorded in January of 2021. Now to the business at hand, I'm pleased to have with us Harold Holzer uh, with a brand new work, big topic here, The Presidents versus the Press, the endless battle between the White House and the media from the Founding Fathers to fake news. Harold Holzer uh, is a recipient of the 2015 Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize. He's one of the country's leading authorities on Abraham Lincoln and the political culture of the Civil War era. He currently serves as the director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College University uh, in New York. I'm very pleased to have him here. Harold, uh, how are you, my friend? I am fine. <clears throat> Thank you for having me. Well, good. Uh, very much appreciate you being here. My gosh, uh, the presidents versus the press, that's about as big a topic as possible. Let's uh, let's do this. Give our Lewis at Large listeners a little bit of background about, of all the things you could be writing about, tell us about why the White House versus the press uh, caught your fancy and why you felt uh, sort of inspired to do this. Well, as you pointed out, I had a book about five years ago called Lincoln and the Power of the Press, and um, it it was well-received. And, um, you know, we're all living through the same period together. Um, The Trump presidency, which was then in its infancy, uh, which was dominated in the early days in 2017 by a lot of discussion about the press as fake and uh, journalists as enemies of the people. And I thought um, it would uh, be a contribution to look back at that history um, um, and to see whether Trump was unique in his antipathy toward the press or whether there is any historical grounding and background for the kind of hostility he seemed to take to a new, to a new level. So that was, the, that was the historian's inspiration. But in my own life, I, um, I started my professional career a long, long time ago as uh, a journalist. I, for about three years, I was a cub reporter, then a reporter, and then the editor of a Manhattan news weekly called the Manhattan Tribune, which was very political because our publisher was a, a political person. He'd run for Congress. He'd worked for President Kennedy. So it was all politics all the time in Manhattan, which is a political place as well. And um, after leaving that job, well, the paper folded. I didn't leave the job. After the paper disintegrated, I was a political press secretary for um, a member of Congress uh, who ran for the United States Senate uh, and for Governor Mario Cuomo, the current governor's father. So I figured not only was I interested in this topic, I know this is a long answer and I apologize, not only was I interested in this topic, but I brought to it the perspective of a historian, um, of a former journalist, and as a former um, PR guy for politicians. And I thought I could add something to the field by bringing all those disciplines together. 
Well, we certainly know historically that the president, uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, has always had a little bit of an arm's length, a love-hate relationship with the press uh, from time to time, more intense than others. Uh, By design, uh, do you find that healthy? Yeah, conceptually I find it healthy. And by the way, the 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 distance and uh, and the anger existed even before they moved into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue because George Washington even though he went through a first term where everyone still regarded him as the great hero of the revolution and untouchable um all of a sudden found himself in Philadelphia the capital then surrounded by a couple of hostile newspapers imported by the way by his own secretary of state Thomas Jefferson because he thought there should be an opposition press, and they practically ran him out of the presidency. Otherwise, he might have run for a third term. And he hated them by the time he left. So that's what set, set even if Washington, if Washington could be assailed, anybody could be assailed. Let me jump way forward uh, sure. to our most recent president, uh, President Trump. And one of the very, very big issues, one of the very, very big things uh, he jumped on right away was the whole concept uh, of fake news uh, in a way that was far more pointed, far more uh, enthusiastic and with more energy behind it uh, than ever before. Um, why, in your opinion— did that strike such a chord so deeply and so quickly? Well, first I would say that other presidents have done it in the past, and others have been um, have followed up on angry words much more decisively than Donald Trump ever did. And, you know, um, we can say that now at the end of his term, that we've sort of lived through it and survived, um, and the press has survived. But... Um, John Adams signed and enforced a law that made it a federal crime to ridicule the president. And they and they put uh, journalists on trial and fined them and threw them into prison. Abraham Lincoln's administration um, sh- uh, arrested and shut down over 200 editors in the, in the North during the Civil War for speaking out against joining the Army, uh, re-enlisting or speaking out against the draft, or opposing his administration. Woodrow Wilson censored the press in World War One. There was a, um, an Espionage Act under which reporters were prevented from printing things. Some were thrown in jail. Roosevelt did similar things in World War II. Obama was very tough on the press. The thing about Trump is that as angry as he got, he never did anything about it, whether that's reflective of his you know chronic inability to follow up on anything, or whether he was just doing it for show, we'll have to see. I'm going to write about that when I write the preface to the uh, to the paperback edition, because the book, you know, ends in the you know toward the end of the Trump term, but not the total end. And I would just add, you know, Trump, the greatest communicators among presidents. As I as I wrote this book, I came to this conclusion: the greatest communicators are those who don't depend on the press but find other ways to speak directly to the people. Roosevelt uh, was a genius at the radio. Uh, John F. Kennedy on television. Barack Obama uh, began the White House website. But Donald Trump, uh, through Twitter and, you know, 80 million followers, has become his own voice. I think he sort of wasted his time using Twitter to attack the press. He just needed to do what Roosevelt did and do his own thing, and he would have 
you know, perhaps been more successful, even been reelected. Um, the election was close enough to think that. So I think his anger is amplified because of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And it just puts it in our lives every minute of every day. If you just joined us, yours truly, Warner Lewis from the flight deck of Lewis at Large. And I uh, got a good one going here with Harold Holzer. He is the winner of the Lincoln Prize. He also serves as the director uh, of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College uh, in New York. Uh, a brand new work called The Presidents Versus the Press. Harold, what about uh, also we, we talk about the press, the, the traditional press of radio, television, newspaper, magazine. Uh, in the last 20 years, web. Uh, and the last 10 years, more direct, Twitter, etc. Is Twitter considered the press? Is Facebook the press? Is social media considered the press? Or is it just one more communication and distribution channel? And if so, do they play a different role than, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post? Yeah, I think you've got it exactly right. They're platforms, the same way that the that Morse's invention of the telegraph uh, made it possible to get news really fast, let's say from the Mexican War. Nobody had ever gotten war news that quickly. Um, the same way that radio was a conduit for entertainment and news as you sat in your living room, unheard of, to hear voices. I mean, think of it, it's only 100 years ago that this technology was introduced, and then, of course, television brought visuals. But you have to fill those medium, those media with, with um, you know, messages. Uh, as McLuhan said, it's not just the medium, it's the message. And what I think we've seen, and I think the one platform you left out is maybe the most important, and that's cable TV and talk radio, uh, because uh, the content is what has aroused people, either too far left, too far right, and yet... Opinion television, uh, which I think is probably the most impactful medium of the day, is um, very much going back to the old school. I mean, George Washington complained that there was partisan news, uh, and he said it was false news. There you go. He, he invented the phrase that the first president invented the phrase that the most recent president used. Um, so, you know, in in the 50 years after the Rose, Teddy Roosevelt was president, we sort of had nonpartisan journalism. You know, they were tough. They investigated Nixon um, without really being partisan. But now they're back to being partisan. You get a completely different focus on Fox News as you do on MSNBC. Um, and And so we're back to kind of a bifurcated presentation of current events, very much laced with opinion. I just like to tell people it's nothing new. It's kind of an American tradition. Um, so, you know, maybe we could just get over it and move on. So that was one of the arguments of the book. Sure. What about also, what's your take on the current state of regulation of the media? And, and uh, maybe it's two different Two different uh, issues here. One is, and it's certainly in the forefront recently, is uh, the power of social media uh, and what are they allowed to do or not do. And then that's one side of it. Then the other side of it is just legislation regarding uh, reporting uh, and content. Maybe it's FCC and others for the electronic media, the traditional electronic media. You know, that is a great point. And, and I certainly did not get to it in the book. So I think we're all over the place now in in the regulatory um, 
phase. Obviously, the Trump administration was generally anti-regulatory. They put people on the communication FCC that were anti-regulatory, but also anti-media giant platforms. Um, but at last, last we heard, the person he installed to be the decisive vote decided he wasn't going to um, mirror what, or at least enforce what Trump had hoped he would in the waning days of the administration. So I think you know there, there's going to be a lot that this new that the Biden administration is going to focus on. I think they're committed to a different kind of communication and briefing, but ultimately they're going to get to the regulations. And I think um, it's going to deal not only with the what we used to call the fairness doctrine, if you run one opinion, do you have to run the other? That was thrown out the window a long time ago. Maybe we should reconsider it, especially during actual campaigns. And then the second thing is what... Uh, do the platforms themselves, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, and the Twitters, can uh, the, the people who run them decide who gets to be on or who gets to be off um, at a whim or, you know, to show off or whatever? I think there's this, you know, I'm personally, um, I was relieved when President Trump was moved off Twitter and was banned from Twitter because we were in such an incendiary time. But I also have First Amendment questions about the right to speak and the right to be heard. Um, you know, the difference between yelling that there's a danger to the country and there's a fire in a theater is actually a very small line, protected speech versus incendiary speech. And I think we're going to have to have a reckoning uh, about that. And I'm not sure which way we go. Well, isn't some of this also, uh, you could make the case that Twitter and Facebook do not create content. They're simply, again, a mouthpiece, as you as you said, a, a platform. Right. Uh, CBS News, the New York Times, there's a lot of editorializing and a lot of content in there that is not necessarily reporting of the news. It is genuinely, and by their own admission, opinion. Uh, that probably puts a different spin on everything, I would think. You're absolutely right. I mean, the New York Times... Um, is mostly a feature news and investigative news operation. Today it had, just thinking of today's newspaper, it had a story on a woman who has been captivated by the QAnon, um, um, you know, whatever, theory or whatever one calls it. Um, and if you look, I think they actually are most influential, not with opinion, but by their choice of stories. So by choosing to focus on things, they they are emphasizing their editorial opinion. But if you look at the New York the front page of the New York Times in let's say January 1863, you will find five news stories on different aspects of the brand new Emancipation Proclamation and how wonderful it would be and how what a brilliant stroke of political and military genius it was. If you look at the front page of the Democratic New York World, um, you will see that Abraham Lincoln has brought on, um, you know, will bring on a race war, that he's lost his constitutional moorings, that he's a dictator acting without constitutional um, permission or authorization. So depending on which platform you read, you got a completely different opinion-laced view of the news. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's kind of an American tradition. So the New York Times of today is almost like the New York Times 
of the Civil War era. It just had a hundred years in between to do more along the lines of its famous slogan, all the news that's fit to print. What about, uh, again, we read and we see, not every day, but certainly every year, major and certainly mid-major and smaller dailies going out of business, that the role of the daily newspaper is one that is diminishing, like it or not. Uh, Interesting to me still that the New York Times, the Washington Post, L.A. Times, etc., some of these still, though, carry a big, strong amount of sway. Uh, do you see that lessening, or do you see them still kind of the bellwethers? Yeah, for now, I do. Um, I think the remarkable thing about the Washington Post is that they had been fading a bit in terms of influence since the Watergate days. I would say Watergate was its peak, Pentagon Papers, which was you know, a period when the New York Times had equal, if not more, uh, influence and precedent-shattering um, assignments and decisions I think the Post has pushed back into being a force. I think the Wall Street Journal um, has become more of a force than it had been when it was strictly a a business publication. And what's fascinating is that Rupert Murdoch, who who, uh, has been condemned for poisoning conversation on Fox News, and for having a um, you know a, a ultra conservative sensationalist newspaper in New York City called the New York Post has meanwhile simply sharpened the Wall Street Journal in terms of its coverage, its staff. Um, I mean, I I should say for those who might be hearing who know, I have a son-in-law who is an editor in the art section at the Wall Street Journal. So when I say they've improved their staff, obviously I have personal reasons to think that, but. Um, so their coverage is now considered, and, and the interesting thing is that Murdoch did not do what he's done in his London or Australian papers and on Fox. He did not make it an ultra paper. He did not make it a uh, a, a, a kind of a um, you know a hysterical and tabloid paper. He simply made them start running photographs, which they'd never did done, and then color photographs. Uh, it's a remarkable thing. So some new, you're right. The big blockbuster newspapers are surviving. They're doing well. Maybe not the Chicago Tribune, um, but we are losing the um, certainly the neighborhood papers, the local papers, and the big chains like uh, Knight Ritter and those are 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 not doing well. They they probably bought too many papers and took the local out of the local papers. I think that's one of the reasons they're they're diminishing. Well, as we start to wind down here, uh, Harold, again, from your vantage point, uh, we have this work in front of us, the president's versus the press. What's, to, in your opinion, what what's sort of the big takeaway? And are we headed towards an era where the relationship uh, will be healthy? Will it be unhealthy or TBD? Well, to everything is TBD. So, uh, I would choose if that's the door number one, number two, or number three. I pick number three. But I think what we've heard from Biden is that he wants to go back to what he considers to be a sense of normalcy and uh, tradition. Uh, for him, that's the, the the Obama administration tradition. But the the most surprising thing I found in my research is that the press hated 
the Obama administration. They didn't hate Barack Obama, but they thought that his office controlled everything. They thought he investigated and wiretapped reporters without justification. So be careful what you wish for, guys. Um, I'm talking to the press. You were not happy with Obama, and I think you found it in some ways easier with Trump because you had like a boogeyman to to um, complain about. Obama was restrictive. I'll give you my, my favorite story from the Obama chapter. He got an award for his being open with journalists, but he closed the ceremony off to the press. That's Barack Obama. Uh, that's what life for reporters was like. So what are we going to see now? I think report, there are going to be daily briefings again in the White House. There's going to be an effort to to tell the truth for as long as possible. But there will be something that breaks out that that the press finds out about, that the administration doesn't want to discuss. It doesn't have to be a scandal. It doesn't have to be about a family member. It, it could be about policy. But that's the healthy relationship. The press inquiring, the press protecting our systems and institutions, the president doing his job, the administration trying to promote itself and, you know, when necessary for security reasons or reasons of privacy or even secrecy, not wanting to tell everything the press wants to hear. So I think that tension will be healthy, but with all the new media platforms, all of the um, you know websites we haven't even be- begun to discuss, it's hard to know whether we ever get one story at any one time, and I think that's the danger but it's unavoidable. Technology is moving fast, and um, it'll be interesting to see how a 79-year-old president and his administration deals with it. Indeed. Again, the work uh, is the president's versus the press, the endless battle between the White House and the media, from the founding fathers to fake news. Harold Holzer, uh, again, a prolific historian uh, and currently serving as the director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College. Harold, uh, thank you so much for spending part of your day and your insights with us. How can people pick up a copy uh, of The Presidents versus the Press? And also, uh, you've got done a lot of writing uh, in the past. How can people find out more about that? Well, I have a website uh, called haroldholzer.com, but Amazon has all of my books, including the most recent one. And I guess, you know, I'd love to tell people to go to their neighborhood bookstore, but I know access is limited these days. But Warner, thank you for asking how to do that, and thank you for asking me on the show. Well, enjoyed it thoroughly, and uh, have a wonderful 2021. You as well. Stay safe. Well, thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.